Well, the needly men, they are described in verse 19 as being sensual, having not the spirit. And of course, if they have not the spirit, then on the basis of Romans 8, but we won't turn to it, but please do if you wish, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And therefore, if these men, whatever they may say, and whatever um, uh, pleasant their may approach may be, if they have not the spirit of Christ, then they are ungodly men. They're sensual, not spiritual. They uh, would much rather we worship to appeal to the flesh, to our desires. We want to perhaps enjoy worship for what it is, for what it does for us rather than understand and uh, rejoice in spiritual worship, which worships God objectively. And sadly, we see that, don't we, even in the days in which we live. This is a very relevant letter when it comes to worship, but also in the way that we should serve God and the way that we should live for God. And there are many, many in these days, and therefore we need to be prepared, who perhaps, and we'll come to this in due course, Perhaps, if we can say this carefully, but such were, if I can't say such were all of us, I can certainly say such were some of us, we meant well. But it was a zeal without, it, without uh, knowledge. And therefore, we probably caused far more damage than uh, we could ever have realized. And that is here, and we'll see that in a moment. And sometimes people who have been, as it were, all out for these purposes, perhaps unknowingly, of destruction and uh, pulling down that which has been constructed by the Lord Jesus Christ have to be plucked as brands from the burning, as uh, was mentioned this morning. And uh, perhaps the apostle himself, Paul, he was Saul, and he had to be handled rather differently. Well, all these things are in this letter, and so I'd like us to very, very quickly, first of all, see what the problem is, See how Jude would have us be prepared and equipped to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints and then apply what we have learned to the three problems that were particularly characteristic of the teaching of these false teachers, these ungodly, these sensual men who perhaps had an appearance of godliness but were really motivated by something rather less pleasant. And uh, the three things, first of all, we see there in verse 4, these certain men crept in unawares, these ungodly men. First, they're turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That word lasciviousness, if you have a uh, margin, it's a grand old Bible word. My margin tells me it's lustfulness, sensual wantonness, indecency. It's an enjoyment at a sensual level rather than anything spiritual. They're turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. This is uh, something which uh, the Bible teaches much about, that we should enjoy ourselves, that we should feed our appetites, our lusts, our desires, that we should live our lives for our benefit and gratification, rather than live our lives for his glory and the furtherance of his purposes, that we should serve him as he would have us serve him, not serve him in a way that we think we can get away with because we can come and find grace. It's really the teaching that sin should abound, that grace may abound. Secondly, in verse 4, they're denying the only Lord God. 
How do we deny the only Lord God? Well, we see that and some in the days in which we live, don't we? How did these things appear? Isn't this wonderful? Millions and billions of years. The wonders of time and chance. You can't be a credible individual these days if you don't believe in organic evolution. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And if God can speak the universe into existence then we have a right perspective of the great God that he is. But if we're going to limit him according to natural forces and all sorts of things that we think we can understand, we bring God right down. We deny him his place in his own universe. Isn't that dreadful? We deny him his right, his authority, his presence. And we deny the truth that is spoken in his own word. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, denying the only Lord God. And thirdly, they deny our Lord Jesus Christ. How does this happen? Well, I don't think we have to look far, do we? How many ways to know God? What did the Lord Jesus Christ say? I am the way. Not I am a way. I am the way. The truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But that's not what we're taught now in our contemporary religion classes in schools, colleges and academies, is it? No, it's one of many ways, apparently. And, of course, we perhaps have regretted, uh, although we have rejoiced much, of course, over recent uh, times, we perhaps regret that now our sovereign is or are or will be the defender, defenders of faith, not the faith. Faith, we're described as being people of faith rather than people of the book or people of the word, denying that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Savior, that there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. So this is, again, as we saw with Haggai this morning, this is such a relevant book. It could almost be written for our times. And, of course, that's one of the wonderful things about the Scripture. Not only is it authoritative, not only is it infallible, but it is perpetually sufficient. It never goes out of date. Talking about things in the fridge beyond their sell-by date and whether we should eat them or not. But the Bible never goes past its sell-by date. We have everything we need here. An individual, family, local church life, national life, for all time until Christ shall return. Well, the apostle, sorry, the apostles have written warning. And what Jude is doing, he is reminding of what they have heard. You know these things, but I'm writing to you again, as it were. And I want to give the seven reasons first, and then we'll look at one of them as time permits. From verse 17, there are seven things. It's always good to find seven in Scripture, I think. These are the seven things we need to do that we may be prepared and equipped to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. In verse 17, first of all, remember. We must remember the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we read Psalm 119. We need to be lovers of the word. We need to be students of the word. We need to be guided by the principles of the scripture. We need to remember 
We often see that in Scripture, don't we? And that's why this subject, and I have to watch myself, would so easily take us off into all sorts of other subject areas of life. Psalm 143, for example. The psalmist was in trouble. What did he do? He remembered. He mused. And he was therefore able to, as it were, be restored in times of affliction. Talking about bereavement. In times of doubt and need, the Scripture is perpetually sufficient. We must remember, otherwise we're at the mercy of what the world says, or what we say, or what the person who we spoke to last said, or even worse, what the newspaper tells us. No, we need to have good memories. We need to be versed and steeped in the scripture. Secondly, we need to, this is uh, in verse uh, 20, secondly, we need to build up ourselves on our most holy faith come to that in a moment thirdly we need to be those who pray in the holy ghost pray in the holy spirit verse 20 fourthly we need to be those who keep ourselves in the love of god verse 21 fifthly we need to be those who are looking for the mercy of our lord jesus christ unto eternal life now that's especially with a view to that great and coming day when as it were and if I can just digress here slightly, there's a very dear spiritual man now with the Lord. And I remember him asking me, uh, when you appear before the Lord on that great and coming day, what will you say? I said, well, did you know? It's not something I've really thought about. And he said, I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And I thought about that over the years. And I thought, that's probably, a, yes, that's a very good thing to say, isn't it? God be merciful to me. A sinner, but on that great and coming day, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he will come in for us, as we sometimes say, that he will say, no, justified because I have suffered and I have rendered satisfaction all the requirements of the law, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, sixthly here in verse 22, of some have compassion, making a difference. Now, that making a difference doesn't mean we make a difference to those we have compassion on. That making a difference means making a determination. Here is someone who's come among us. It might be a young person, as I hope I would have been, and perhaps saying things I didn't understand, but meaning well. Do we often say that? This, this dear young person, they meant well. We don't want to take them off at the knees, as it were. But we can make a difference. There's a zeal here. This is a person who can be trained, who can be schooled and helped by the scripture. So we have compassion. They may be teaching things which, if they understood the scripture and the mind of Christ, they would be horrified. <laughs> so they need to be helped. And those of us that have been helped and how thankful we were, for those who the Lord used, as it were, to, uh, to use our present Prime Minister's phrase, put their arms around us and have compassion and show us the truth in the word. How thankful we were. They made a difference. They didn't think that we were out and out troublemakers. We make a determination. Have compassion, sixthly. But seventhly, others save with fear. They're in a serious position. They're almost, as it were, in the flames pull them out, hate what they've done, what they are, what characterizes them. You may not be able to have compassion. That won't do it. You need to use, as it were, stronger measures, as we saw with Saul on the road to Damascus. 
Yes, we might say that was the long-suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was pretty drastic, wasn't it? And it may be that sometimes we need to be like that with those who come teaching falsehood. So there are seven preparations there. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to suggest we look at all seven, but I would like us to consider the second. Build up yourselves on your most holy faith, because how important this is. And not just if new, innovative teaching comes, or someone does say, surely we can do that, because God's a merciful God and he'll forgive us. So it's not that important. And just a little bit of leeway here or there. We don't want to be too scrupulous. We don't want to be legalistic, do we? And therefore, let's not get too uptight about doing things in the way God has revealed that they should be done. Let's use our own sanctified common sense. We need to build up ourselves on our most holy faith so we know how to answer this. We know how to understand it. We know how to show compassion to others who may be in the same position that we once were in. And we can put our arms around such and be gracious, kindly and helpful. Well, build up yourselves on your most holy faith. First of all, this faith. What faith is this? This is obviously foundational faith because we're going to be built up upon it. And it is holy faith. It's faith that leads to holiness. Build up yourselves on your most holy faith. And we see this, don't we, in various passages in Scripture. We could turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Add to your faith. And the list continues, doesn't it? Add to your faith, virtue, add to your, and then knowledge, and then add and add, and it goes up, as it were, the rungs of a ladder until you get to brotherly kindness and charity. You build on foundational faith. That's not saving faith. What is foundational faith? Well, it's what we sometimes call the faith. It's those vital doctrines. It's those foundational truths. It's things which we need to be absolutely persuaded of. We need to have conviction. This isn't just a matter of taste. This is a matter of life and death in some cases. This is conviction. And the illustration that is uh, uh, given, I, I heard a, a, a dear brother, he was pre preaching in a church where the pastor of the church used this illustration, so I feel uh, I can uh, uh, very humbly but say I'm in good company using this illustration. He uses the illustration of a plumber. You've got a leak. Actually, you've got a leak under the sink, uh, in the sink, in the kitchen, under the kitchen sink, and you're not very good at doing things, as I'm certainly not. So you call in a plumber, and the plumber comes, and he says, ah, yes, I see what's the matter there. I can soon fix that. You just need a bit of piping, a bit of plumber's mate, and a, a monkey wrench would be a good idea as well. Yeah, I can, uh, I've solved that for you. And you say, well, can you do it? And he says, no, well, I don't have any plumber's mate. I don't have uh, a monkey wrench. Why would I have them? And you say, yeah, but you're a plumber. Are they essential to your trade? And what's being said, as it were, is this faith, this foundational faith, these doctrines, these truths, these understandings, these abilities to defend and persuade in a gracious way, speaking the truth in love, these are essential, and especially in these days. So if someone did come in and say, well, surely we could sort of loosen up a bit, couldn't we? And we all enjoy a good knees up or a good sing song, so perhaps we'll do that this evening. How would you answer that? From the Bible. We need to be able to do that because there are plenty of people who are saying that. Surely we should enjoy worship first and foremost. The question at the end of a service is not, was God honoured? 
in what we did in the last hour. But the question is, did we enjoy it? Well, of course, in a way, we enjoy, if we want to use that word, if God was honored. But it's not our enjoyment first, and whether God was honored, and whether it was according to what he has revealed in his word. That's neither here nor there. No, that's fundamental. And if we do things God's way, then our joys are heightened and increased. And therefore, spiritual worship does bring great delight It humbles us. It rids us of self. It exalts the Lord and we're richly blessed. But can we show this from Scripture? If we can't, then we're going to be vulnerable and our ability to contend will be zero. So how do we build up ourselves on our most holy faith? Having those fundamental convictions, those principles being ready to give a reason, not by way of testimony, but by help and explanation to those who ask a reason for the hope that is within us. Well, let me suggest that first of all, I suppose it goes without saying, we need to be those who read the scripture. And not only do we read it, we meditate upon it. How did David worship? Notice he was very, very concerned to do everything according to the pattern that was given to Moses. David didn't say, oh, well, I think I'll do it this way. When Solomon came along, he thought, well, you know, times have moved on a bit. We'll do it this way. There was a pattern given. It's a scrupulousness. We read and meditate. And therefore, we understand. I've mentioned the verse in the Psalms, which uh, is always in my, as it were, Uh, toolbox, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day, but in the New Testament I'm sure we know, 2 Timothy 3 16, 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for four things, isn't it? We should know this, it's profitable for doctrine that's teaching and it's exactly this that we may be built up on our most holy faith, what does the Lord say about this, what instructions are there here, are there commandments, are there examples, are there types are there exhortations But then notice the negatives. First of all, doctrine, yes, but then reproof and correction sounds rather negative, we may say. Our tendency is to get it wrong. Not to just be like a blank page. We get it wrong. We're prone to get it wrong. That's a problem with us. That's why it has to be correction and instruction. Sorry, correction and reproof. And then the fourth thing is instruction in righteousness. We need to clear out all that's wrong, our own ideas, what we think, what we enjoy. We do have to, as it were, start again. What does the Lord want? What does the Lord say? Instruction in righteousness. His ways. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And if we do that then we may put ourselves under his good spirit in the way of his blessing. So we read and meditate upon the scripture. Paul, in uh, writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, you'll know this, is bring the books, but especially the parchments. And many like to discuss what the parchments were. And many suggest that these were actually the rolls, these were the scrolls, these were the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Because yes, Paul could read books, and I'm sure he was very good at reading books, and I'm sure much had been written, and he was checking what was being written and circulated on various 
scrolls, but he wanted the scriptures, especially the parchment. Well, what do you say if someone says, yeah, but he was an apostle. He was a walking scripture. Surely he didn't need to study the Old Testament. He had revelation from God. Yes, he did. But he clearly did need to study the scriptures, and he had time while he was. Now, if the apostle needed the parchments, I think it's a little bit arrogant, isn't it, if we say, oh, we know better than the apostle. We have an insight that comes, perhaps, of the wisdom of this world and the advance in understanding and scholarship. We don't need the parchments. We'll do it this way. No, he wanted the parchments. And in verse 15, that was verse 13 of 2 Timothy 4, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If we go back to the plumber and the workman, actually it's nothing to do with what he said. The problem is something completely different. And he does get his monkey wrench and his plumber's mate and his tubing and his whatever else he needs. But it doesn't actually make the slightest difference to the leak under the sink. He's completely misdiagnosed the problem and he's done something completely unnecessary. But that's not what we're to be like. We are to rightly divide the word of God. And we shouldn't need to be ashamed. We need to be those who read, who meditate and who are therefore instructed. Secondly, we need to hear Scripture. Again, it's an exhortation to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. You know, I suppose uh, one of the problems, uh, perhaps you may think of many reasons why this is true, but anyway, let me admit to one of the problems of perhaps being a preacher is you don't tend to hear Scripture read very often because you're always reading it yourself. But I can remember when I used to sit in a pew or in a chair, then um, you would hear things. If someone said, we're now going to read Jude, for example, as we've done this evening, you would hear things, or I would hear things anyway, and perhaps it's only me, but if I'd read it myself, it wouldn't have been the same at all. There were th- I've never seen that before. Do you know, yesterday afternoon, I was in a service on the way here, uh, stopped off in uh, somewhere for a, an induction service, and the one who gave the charge to the church and to the minister, he preached on a verse. I must have read it an awful lot of times. But it was the apostle, and he said this to the church at Corinth, the more I love you, the less I be loved. It's amazing, isn't it? Where's that? Well, you can tell me afterwards. But uh, yes, that's the verse he preached on. And and he took the application. The more the minister, the pastor, loves his people and does all for his people, the less he seems to be appreciated. And he turned to the dear man being inducted and said, uh, you better get used to it, friend. And anyway, that's another matter. But if I had read that, and I must have read that chapter many times, but I've never seen that before. But if we hear it, and one of the wonders, if I may just put in a grand authorized version, we certainly don't apologize for this version, because this version was under the wonderful work of God, translated Obviously accurately, and we believe it's uncorrupted, but for a particular purpose. People were going to receive this word through the ear, not through the eye. They couldn't read. And therefore, they were going to hear. And therefore, our translators, in a wonderful way, made it 
clear and made sure, and they did this by reading it to one another in their translation and in their uh, various committees. There were six of them, but anyway, I must get distracted with this. How does it hear? And sometimes people accuse the authorised version of translating words differently. This is particularly true at the beginning of Mark. You can get a modern version, and it's immediately, 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 immediately. That's absolutely fine. But the authorised version says, well, people are going to listen to this. That might be a little hard on the ear. Could we find another word? Doesn't mean exact, well, it doesn't mean exactly the same. It doesn't sound the same. So sometimes they use the word straightway. Well, you might be able to drive a wedge between immediately and straightway, but you'd be hard-pressed to do so. And there are other things like by and by. That used to mean immediately as well. Why? Because people were going to listen to this. And therefore, whether through eye gate, as John Bunyan would say, or whether through ear gate, we need to be receiving the word of God. There is no possible alternative way to be built up on our most holy faith. And one of the problems we do have to watch for is there are so many wonderful materials today for a little verse or a chunk of a verse and a few uh, very helpful um, sayings, uh, writings. I don't want to denigrate that at all, but we don't want to have that at the expense of reading and hearing scripture built up upon our most holy faith. We read, we meditate, we hear, we study. Now thirdly, I'm not going to tell you how many points I've got so you don't get worried, but thirdly we need to exercise, don't we? Now sometimes um, uh, we are told that we're going to have all sorts of illnesses and problems if we don't exercise, whether it's our hearts, our blood pressure, our respiratory systems or whatever it is. Perhaps uh, we want to look a bit more, um, <coughs> a bit more muscular. What do we do? We uh, supposedly work out, I think they call it, and we go to the gym, and uh, then we uh, don't remember to go to the gym, and we apparently spend money we shouldn't. Muscles are to be exercised. And one of the wonderful ways of building ourselves up is, of course, to exercise. Now, we see that in Scripture, especially in respect of this very need to build ourselves up on our most holy faith. Let me just read three verses from Hebrews chapter 5. This is verses 12 to verse 14. The apostle's writing to a large audience here, and he says this, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers... Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. You should make more progress than this. What's gone wrong? You should have by now made some advance in building yourselves up on your most holy faith, but you haven't. You still want milk. You're not even ready for solids yet, as it were. Verse 13, for every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use. If you have a, 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 a margin there, you'll see against use and habit or perfection, completion who by reason of habit or perfection have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
someone comes with something new and something testing and perhaps we're attracted to it. Is it good or evil? Well, we don't know. If we're still having milk, that's what the Bible's saying. We need to exercise. We need to make progress. If we don't exercise, we won't make progress. I'm sure if the doctor prescribes, I don't know, you do 10,000 steps every day for three months and go back and he'll take your blood pressure and see if you're making any progress. And you go back and he says, oh dear, what's gone wrong here? And he said, uh, and you say, well, I, I listened to you, but I didn't particularly want to do 10,000 steps a day. And the doctor said, well, you won't get uh, your blood pressure down and I'll have to give you medication. No reason of exercise. We need to exercise. How do we exercise? Well, we can ask one another questions, can't we? We can speak together. Do you think this is a good idea? Do you think this is not a good idea? You know, I have to be careful, but there's a church in Plymouth. I met the pastor, for the minister there for the first time just over a week ago. He very proudly told me that he was a, a paid-up member of the Magic Circle. Now, I'm still wondering quite how I should react to that. But on the door of his church, it's a big church, he says, six o'clock. And there's all these things that happen at six o'clock. And the first words are creative and innovative worship. I didn't read any more. And I thought, what is the difference between creative and innovative? Now, if you know the answer, please tell me afterwards. But I suppose if I went along, I'd find out. And I thought, creative or innovative worship? Now then, what do you, dear friend, think creative or innovative worship is? Why doesn't it say biblical worship? Whatever creative and innovative worship is, it clearly isn't biblical worship. Otherwise, it would say biblical worship. What's my reaction? Are the antennae out? I think in just a minute... This is uh, slightly concerning. It's almost as though perhaps the Bible has had its day. We can do things a little better. And we need to be able to speak to one another. And perhaps we can speak. What is creative and innovative worship? What are the dangers of using our minds to decide how we worship rather than waiting on the Lord to know how he would have us worship him? And we can speak and we can reason. We can perhaps speak of experience. I used to do this, and goodness me, what a tragedy. So-and-so used to do this, and now where are they? We learn and we speak. We exercise. We point out verses. We perhaps read from men, from, from women, from others who have had perhaps their fingers burnt. We need to be exercising. Perhaps we need to seek to persuade in the right spirit, of course, speaking the truth in love. We need to be able to answer those who come and say, well, let's try creative and innovative for three months and then see what we think of it. How would you answer that? I suspect that at the end of three months, there'd be an awful lot of confusion. There'd be tremendous damage done. And my personal view is that we would probably empty the church of uh, any spiritual members of the congregation and we would have an awful lot of wood, hay and stubble. But you may want to exercise <laughs> in these things afterwards. But that's how we grow. And then we can refer to scripture and we can learn. We speak and iron sharpeneth iron. We speak often. It's like strengthening a muscle, building up ourselves on the scripture that we may build up ourselves on our most holy faith. Fourthly, we look to godly examples. You know, time and time again, the apostle says this, doesn't he? Be imitators of me. 
Now, we could say, now, just a minute, that sounds a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? Ah, but even as I am of Christ. But Christ isn't here. So, you see how I do it. Not because I've got lots of skill at creative and innovative. I've got an awful lot of skill, though, in humble following and learning. And I've been given that wonderful privilege of calling others to learn and prove what I've proved so. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, 16, be followers of me. And in verse 17, he's going to send Timothy. And what does he say of Timothy? He shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean what some expositors say it means. Well... Timothy's going to come along and say, no, no, that way of Paul, that's not in Christ, so don't take any notice of him on that. When he says that, yes, that is in Christ, so you're saved. No, what it means is the ways of the apostle, they are in Christ. That's why Timothy's going to come to remind you. We have godly examples. Now, I've been a young man and I've had to learn uh, slowly and uh, over many years, especially uh, rather wasted teenage years, but that's neither here nor there. But what do you do if you want to justify something which perhaps you have a sense it isn't right, but you want to do it? You find someone in the church, especially if someone has gray hairs in the church and they do it. It doesn't matter what everyone else does. You found a bad example, and therefore you justify your position. But what about all the others? We look for godly examples, be followers of us, Paul writes to the Philippians, and those who walk like us. And he goes on to say, for many walk, not like us. And he speaks of tears, because they're nowhere anymore. We look for godly examples if a certain person is preaching, teaching, or has written a book, we want to read that. This brother is worth hearing. He's a faithful man. If someone recommends this book, we say, who's the author? Well, we don't particularly want to read that book. Not because we condemn him out of hand, but we know that he perhaps doesn't have a reputation for seeking faithfully to build up upon the scripture. He's a uh, very well known, but he perhaps has a rather high view of his self or whatever it may be. We look to godly examples. We may need help. Should I read this book or not? You ask someone, don't read it, and then have to spend months and months or years and years in recuperation because it's done you damage. Godly examples, how precious, how valuable they are. And I remember the awful day that it occurred to me that now people looked at me in the way I used to look at others in the church. And they sought an example in me. How scary is that? Do they look to you for an example? If they do, make sure you give a good example, not a bad example, for the Saviour's pleasure and for the safety of souls. Fifthly, we teach others also. Remember how Paul writes to Timothy, training up her men? Able to teach others also. You know, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Have you ever... You must have all proved this. You never really know what you believe until you try and persuade someone else. Now, I remember my uh, elder son, who some of you will know, and I think uh, I see this when some people come to us at Beacon Park in Plymouth, and perhaps as an issue arises, whatever it may be, I won't be specific deliberately, but I can be if you want me to. And I say to them, do you know why 
you think that, or you do that, or you don't do that. And they say, well, that's just the way we do it. So you know what you do, but you don't know why you do it. Could you ever persuade me that the way you do it is biblical? Well, we don't know why we do it. We just do it that way. My older son used to phone me up from uh, university and said, uh, in the Christian Union, this has come up. And I've said, well, we don't do it that way in Beacon Park, but I don't know why. (laughs) Why don't we do it that way? And you can go through the scriptures gently. And if you're able to persuade and teach, then it tends to uh, reinforce your understanding, doesn't it? Someone may ask a question. You can't actually answer it or you can't convince them. And it's no good raising your voice and shouting. That's not going to convince them. You need perhaps to go back to the scriptures and study and hear and read and exercise and perhaps find what other godly men have thought so that you can teach. There was a pastor, you perhaps know the illustration well, he thought he might benefit his congregation by uh, taking a series on explanations of characters and incidents from Pilgrim's Progress. Apparently, uh, the congregation were not terribly responsive, so uh, he asked uh, one uh, uh, elderly member, you probably know this, it looks as though some of you do, um, was, his, uh, was his series helping them? And this dear lady said, you know, before you started your series, I had a good understanding of Pilgrim's Progress, but now I don't know what to think. It actually had the opposite effect. He was teaching confusion rather than clarity. And sometimes you'll begin, if you have the, you'll begin to explain something and you'll realize there's an inconsistency here. There's something you've not thought of. This brother, this sister has a genuine concern and you can't actually answer it. It's when you try and teach it. So we need to be those who speak often. Sixthly, we need to rush on. We need to know our adversary mentioned this morning I used to be taken to church and I used to hear a lot and an awful lot I didn't understand but the elderly man very faithful man he used to say this if there's one verse in the bible that would lead me to believe that it wasn't inspired it's this and he proceeded to tell us what it was and it's where the apostle says so again it's to Corinth we are not unaware of his devices And he said, the trouble is, I am so often unaware of his devices. The enemy comes in with a particular temptation. The enemy perhaps puts a particular burden or affliction. Perhaps he takes something that is very precious. Perhaps he deals with you in a wonderful way. Perhaps he doesn't. Perhaps he is masquerading as an angel of light. Perhaps he is being given permission, as with Job, to cause What is happening here? We're not prepared. We can't say that whatever happens tomorrow, I will be able to process it in the light of Scripture. How important is that? Because if not, the enemy will find our weak point and he will go for it. I don't know if you've seen a film that's made of uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in the various uh, Crusades. It's all very interesting, but the uh, various... uh, The mechanisms that they have for hurling stones are all focused on a particular point in the construction of a stone gate, which is its particular weak point. Focus there, and you'll bring the gates to open, 
and of course the uh, city was taken. The enemy knows our weak points. We need to know him. He's not gentle. He's vindictive. He'll know we'll fall if we don't lean on the Lord. If we're living our lives on autopilot and we're not day by day coming and doing a measure of self-examination and seeking pardon for our sins. If we are perhaps thinking too highly of ourselves, as was Peter, whatever happens, I'll even go to death with you. And the Lord had to tell him before the following morning, before the cock crew, he would deny him three times. Peter just didn't know himself. But the enemy did know him. And as Christ said, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, when thou art brought through, strengthen thy brethren. The enemy, dear friend, another, if I dare say it, do forgive me if you think I need to be forgiven. One of the ones of the authorized version, again, is we know that when the Lord said that, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat in Luke 22. That you, the authorised version, tells us whether it's all of the apostles or whether it's just Peter. It wasn't just Peter. Satan hath desired to sift all of you, plural, as wheat. But I have prayed for you individually, Peter. Now, we wouldn't know that with a modern version. Now, it doesn't matter if we have helps, but I'm just mentioning it because... It's not that we can say, oh, well, we're never going to be Peter, so we won't be sifted as wheat. Yes, every single one was going to be sifted as wheat. But it was Peter that was particularly going to be prayed for so that when he was converted, he could strengthen his brethren. We need to know our adversary. He may suggest something to us. We've seen sad things in recent days. I think one of the biggest uh, dangers is young men being put into a pulpit too early. The scriptures are absolutely clear. Not a novice. That's being lifted up. But you do that to someone who's not proven. Goodness me, you reap the whirlwind. And the enemy knows that. Of course he does. The young man is vulnerable to pride. And the outcome is just disaster. Know your adversary. And very quickly, seventh thing, finally, very quickly. We need to check progress. Now, there are some here who know more about Ofsted than I'll ever want to know. But I have been a school governor for many, many years, and there was a, um, a change of stance in 2000, and, uh, well, let's just say about 2005, where Ofsted decided that if they went into a school and it was outstanding, they would not go back within the prescribed three-year period. They would leave it because it was outstanding, and they might do what they called a desk review or a light touch well, the, uh, one of the schools in Plymouth, right near the church, which was outstanding in 2007, hadn't been visited again till 2021. It's actually a school where I have a couple of grandchildren now. 2021, it was put into special measures. You can be outstanding, good, you can require improvement, or you can be in special measures. Special measures? It had been outstanding. What had gone wrong? Well, what had gone wrong was... Progress wasn't being checked. It was sitting on its laurels. It was outstanding. Now, if the external evaluators, checkers were coming in, you would make sure you were as good as you could be. But if no one's going to come in and check, then things begin to slide. That's so true in spiritual things, isn't it? We need to continually be evaluating. 
indwelling sin am I keeping it subdued by the power of the Spirit of God? External temptation. You notice when the Lord uh, gave the uh, pattern prayer, lead us not into temptation. That's external temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not the same petition at all. That's indwelling sin. That's evil from within. And therefore, there's temptation from without and there's indwelling sin from within. We need to watch ourselves. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The world is very, very uh, attractive. Uh, All sorts of promises may be made. We perhaps are tempted as were those we thought of this morning in Haggai, to be a bit more concerned about ourselves and our possessions rather than the house of the Lord and the things of our God. We can justify uh, quite a measure of, of laziness, can't we? Even in our personal walk with the Lord, are we watching things? Are we checking? Are we evaluating? Well, I've completely run out of my time, so I'm going to be ever so very quick now and apply this to these three problems that uh, these evil, these uh, sensual men are bringing. First of all, turning the grace of our God, verse 4, into lasciviousness. Now then, are we set up upon our most holy faith? If we are, we will immediately go to Romans 6, for example, where the question is asked, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? It's two simple words. God forbid. God forbid. Absolutely out of the question. Why? And the apostle goes on to explain. Because we are dead to sin. How can we continue in sin if we are dead to it? What it means is that the person who is truly the Lord's doesn't live this sort of restricted, cramped, narrow life which they feel is so hard but they just have to keep on denying themselves against all their better instincts because that's what they're supposed to do. No, it doesn't mean that at all. What being dead to sin means is we no longer want to do that because we can do something much better. And we're dead to sin and we're made alive to righteousness. This is Galatians 5 verse 13, which if we've read and if we've heard and if we've studied and if we've spoken and if we've persuaded, we'll know. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Liberty. What is Christian liberty? Well, Christian liberty is being now made free to do what is right. This is wonderful. Do you know, we couldn't do this before we were converted. We couldn't choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We couldn't pray, oh, uh, who will deliver me from the body of this death? We had no appetite for righteousness. We wanted to establish our own righteousness. But now, this is wonder of wonders. We're dead to self. If uh, we've maybe been made alive to Christ, we now can desire to do what is right. You know, Christian liberty is not being free to do what you like, although many will teach it is. Christian liberty is being made free to do what is right. Now, we should really be excited by that. We could never do that before. 
We never would want to do that before. We had no appetite for doing what was right before. But now we've been given that liberty. So why, oh why, would we want to go back to doing things which are sinful, selfish, devilish, and harmful? It just doesn't make sense, says the apostle. Don't come saying, well, let's continue doing those things which are sinful, selfish, devilish, and harmful, because grace will be extended to us. No, if we do those things, it will evidence that grace has no part in us, because we're dead to those things. And therefore, we are alive to Christ. We've built up ourselves on our most holy faith. We have an answer. Let's do this. Let's enjoy this. Let's spice this up a bit. No, because we're dead to that which is of self. We're alive to Christ. What of those who teach that uh, God is not the God revealed in Scripture? Well, we can uh, do intensive courses in science if we like, or we can simply take God at his word. And we can see the heavens declaring the glory of God. We can look at things like Psalm 147. Is that a wonderful psalm? He calleth them all by name. You know, we're told that the greatest supercomputers still have not been able to cope with how many stars there are in the universe. And yet God calls them all by name. I mean, the greatness of God. If we have a good view of the greatness of God, we're never going to be taken in by what he can't do this or he couldn't do that or he's limited in this way he can't answer our prayers he can't deliver us from this we just have to live with these tensions and no god is a great god and the enormity of god in all his multifaceted wisdom and attribute should humble us to the dust and whether we understand it or not is irrelevant he is so great and so glorious and so wonderful Thirdly and finally, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we think that, uh, again, some sort of man-made religion will get us to God, we simply haven't understood the gospel. No name given among men. Only the shed blood of Christ and his righteousness. His only righteousness I show. The apostle says, now, having considered his own righteousness in Philippians 3, as refuse, as dung, the authorized version tells us, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness that is of God by faith in, faith of Christ Jesus. No, no other name whereby we must be saved. Well, may we be able to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. May we be ready to stand and give a reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and trembling. May we rejoice in the Lord and rejoice again. May we encourage one another and watch over one another with an eye to one another's safety in dangerous and in godless days. Amen. Well, let's sing our final hymn. It's number 700 and 79 Lord speak to me that I may speak number 779 
So, Lord, our God, we do thank Thee for a day in Thy house. We do thank Thee that we have known something of the presence of our God by His Spirit according to promise. And how we thank Thee for the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ among His people. What a foretaste is ours of glory divine. Lord, forgive us our sins, they are so many. Instruct us in thy ways. May we want to follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may it be said of us that we would decrease. And as with the prophet of old, that Christ may increase. Lord, we do pray that those who hear us and observe us may not see us. But may they see the one who is the object of our first desire. May we be clothed with thy spirit, that all shall see Christ always only, living in me. Lord, help us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Amen.